yes I have a massive smile on my face <laughs> good 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 that makes me happy to hear um I'm excited to read your bio and just talk to you this is so special um, I'm really happy yeah Okay. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Afterlife, uh, a podcast about life, death, and life. Um, and today we have a really special guest, um, a very dynamic, a very, a very, um, I'd say expansive and <laughs> incredible person, um, Kayla Carter. Uh, for those of you that do not know, Kayla Carter is a multidisciplinary artist, community educator, equity and diversity consultant and Reiki healer. Kayla is a, um, is a Toronto-based Black disabled femme survivor who is of Jamaican, Cuban, and Maroon ancestry and believes that her existence is not accidental but very deliberate. Her work focuses on ancestral and intergenerational trauma, shame, healing, queerness, race, gender, disability justice and what it means to be unabashedly human. As a healer, Kayla's work focuses on mental health, self-care, self-love, self, self-love, ancestral and intergenerational trauma, sustainable forms of healing and radical reproductive justice and healing. Um, yeah, so let's let's get into it. Uh, <laughs> there's just there's so you're I feel like there's just so many um, spheres that you're a part of in so many different realms that you are connected to mm-hmm. and incredible intersections so um yeah I kind of wanted to, to know like what's your story and um yeah how did you get into the work the very heavy work um that is grief work yeah so um I think a lot of the reason why I started getting into this kind of work is because um I don't know for me i haven't I've never been able to see some anything as being like static and I at least growing up I always saw how people understood death as being like only one way and we live in a society that very much privileges a very specific way of looking at death um but also grief and I I've always known that there was something more outside of how that was going to be understood, but like really pulling back the layers on like why so that we understand life and death in these very um, static ways. Um, And then I think a lot more around like, how did I get into this kind of work? It was a lot of like my activism work, but also like my work as an artist and my work as a doula. has really informed like how I understand not only what grief means, but also like how I understand the body. And um, that's what a lot of my work centers around, around like the body and how do we decolonize our relationship to the body and what that means um, while also using the body as a medium to do that work. Um, And then also my work as a doula really does center around how do we decolonize birth? Um, how do we not assume and really push forward this idea of a gender binary when it comes to birth? Um, yeah, and then also really thinking about how grief is not something that is quantifiable. This idea of like, there is a very specific amount of time that you're allowed to grieve um, is something that just doesn't ring true in so many ways. 
but actually can be really harmful in ways that we're not always anticipating. Um, so yeah, I think that's a lot of how I arrived at this work. Um, I work with a really, really brilliant um, person who I'd done this work with, um, and her name's Carmen Galvan. She's absolutely brilliant, and it's like an honor to be able to work with her every time I do. Um, but we are part of an organization called Poder, um, and it does. This organization does some really, really awesome work around decolonization, specifically within um, the Latinx diaspora. Um, and that's how we met. And then we did a talk, a, sort of like a cafe talk around um, death and grief, um, but also life as well. And that sort of spiraled. And then after Carmen connected with me um, last year, like end of last year to be like, would you want to possibly do this again? And then we ended up being able to do it again. And it's been really beautiful to be able to do this work um, alongside somebody who like cherishes it, but also understands how transformative this work is as well. That's really, that's really beautiful. Um, I'm curious to know, like in, cause in doing the work that it sounds like um, there's just these cycles of care in relationship to doing um, to, to doing work as a doula mm -hmm. and um, like facilitating, you know, these processes of like care. And then as well as with death, with like bodies that are like, yeah, with, with, with folks that have passed on. Exactly. Um, how do you, do you, how do you see these like in relation to each other? Cause you're seeing both, like, it's interesting to, I guess, hold those two. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. Relationships between um life and death yeah absolutely I think um for me the way that I hold them is just like honoring them for what they essentially are but also like making sure that I'm understanding these things outside of a very like um colonized imperial and capitalistic lens so for example when I think about death I, there's a finality that people, that a lot of us have been taught around death, but not actually understanding that for some of us, death means that like, it doesn't mean that I'm no longer going to have a relationship with this person. It means that it's just going to look different. Um, and that's something that's always been really important for me in my practice. And then also with being a doula, like I think sometimes we, for, for myself at least, whenever I think about like how much of an honor it is to be able to like be part of the journey of like bringing this life into this world. I also think about like, what is a relationship that we can like decolonize with this new person who's in addition to the world that we have. So I always think about it, not so much insofar as like finality, but more so like, how do things change? And that is one of the, like the greatest common denominators between like life and death is, is that it, changes us it changes how we understand things um it forces us to humble ourselves to our own experiences and forces us to remember that like we can be as great as we can be but at the same time um it really is about the relationships that we have with the people that we love yeah <laughs> yeah that that's so beautiful and yeah, yeah you're seeing these things like you're you're there firsthand and you're seeing these 
these these families, these people, mm-hmm. like at their most, um, at the height of their intensity, at the yeah, yeah it's like incredibly transformative, um, transitional phases of absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like that's it, like death and birth are peers of transformation, um, like without a doubt, and I think like that's also a huge way of how I look at it. It is like transformation and like how do we also apply transformative justice to both of these things about how we think about life and how we think about death and what are we doing to support and honor people on both of those seemingly polar opposite journeys but they are inherently transformative Mm -hmm. yeah yeah can you can you talk a little bit about the ways that um our systems of white supremacy and capitalism have um like just dehumanized these processes and like um I like I think well one of the the terms that you mentioned how they romanticize death and I feel like also kind of invisibilize the realities of it yeah 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 I mean I think that in order to have like a really thorough conversation about that we also have to acknowledge that like when I'm thinking about life and death, I'm not just thinking about like the human form. I'm thinking about like everything involved. So I'm thinking about land. I'm thinking about like um, histories of how people came to really understand and define themselves as long as, as well as like the life and death of like animals and our environment. And like all of these things are so interconnected. And I think that's part of like, the colonial and imperial and obviously very capitalist um, violence that is experienced when we're thinking through and also experiencing life and also death, right? So for example, like this idea that like with death under like bureaucratic institutions such as um, what is now known as Canada and on this land, there is so much bureaucratic BS around being like, okay, so we're going to define to you um, the urgency and the intimacy of a relationship based off of our very like white supremacist colonial standards of what personhood is, but also family is defined. Um, And then we will turn around and set a specific amount of time that we deem appropriate for you to grieve. Whereas like that does not provide any room for self-determination. It does not provide any room for people to actually come forward about, hey, this is actually not coinciding with how I'm, what I'm experiencing right now. And furthermore, like no one should ever be able to tell somebody the, the sort of um, weight with which they can grieve something like that's not a thing to be able to tell somebody however that happens all the time right and then when that's also complicated by things um like race and class and gender and sexuality um and so many things the ways in which a lot of black and brown and bipoc folks define family is literally the antithesis to what white supremacy expects family to be. Um, So much of how family is defined is based off of what is your genetic connection to this person, as opposed to the fact that like they're huge parts across the world 
where your lineage is not defined by your father, it's actually defined by your mother, right? Or for queer and trans folks specifically, like, I know that the people who are part of my chosen family mean more to me than any of those people that I'm mm -hmm. related to through DNA. And all of those things live against a backdrop of white supremacy and patriarchal violence that is so invested, like 10 toes deep invested into this idea that family is about who you were born to. We demonize and we, um, we're terrible and we stigmatize people who did not grow up with families that are defined that way. We assume so many things about people based off of their connection to their blood related family or people. However, we also live in a society that has a really big issue um, with being able to define itself and what, define what family is in a way that does not force us um, to make decisions based off of, well, I've known this person the longest or I'm blood related to this person, but more about like, how do I feel around this person? How do I feel around this group of people? Do I feel safe? Do I feel liberated? And for so many of us, how we've come to define family is the antithesis to our liberation. So for me, when I'm thinking about like, how do these things exist under capitalism, under white supremacy, under patriarchal violence, that really is a point where I started is about how do we define our bonds and our relationships and how does that not work um, under in the institutions that we're currently under? But then when I'm also thinking about life and I'm thinking about being a doula, like so much of my work is advocating for my clients and for my chosen family and the people that I work with around making sure that they're having their needs met. Because once again, this is also existing against a backdrop of colonial violence and um, medical racism and so many terrible things that when we're thinking about life, like you mentioned, a lot of these things are romanticized. This idea of just like you give birth and it's this wonderful, beautiful thing. Whereas like, of course it can definitely be a wonderful, beautiful thing. However, when you're having to experience something such as giving birth, such as um, being a parent under capitalism, under white supremacy and under colonization, it looks completely different. And it's not something that I believe should be romanticized, despite the fact that I do this work and I love this work. I do believe that there's a massive amount of romanticization around it. And no, there's not a lot of literature and not a lot of space given to the fact that the ways in which a white um, cisgendered straight woman will give birth will look completely different to a non-binary racialized person giving birth. Those two things are wildly different because of institutions of white supremacy and colonization. Um, so I, especially when I'm thinking about like, how do these things fall underneath white supremacy and capitalism? I think like the romanticization of these two things is incredibly violent um, and is actually quite deliberate in order to negate, to hide, um, but also to not have to atone to like the histories of violence within these two institutions of birth and within death. Um, yeah, I'll stop there because I can literally talk all day about it. Yeah, and it, it feels like um, it's kind of removed like the 
the entire picture of interconnectedness to these systems, but and also like defining for us, like I don't, I don't know if I'm summarizing or repeating, mm. but defining what your relationships should be and to what, and then in some ways giving that power um, to those systems yeah. that act violence. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. And I think it's also like you mentioned, it's so much of it is like how. And we just, like, um, Carmen and I, we just did a workshop on this um, around the fact that, like, and it was about, like, um, the grief of losing relationships. But one of the big things that we spoke about was having a conversation about, like, what does it mean when we live in a society that um, privileges relationships based off of the same sort of um, avenues that a lot of people have experienced harm, right? Um, how do we reconcile these things up against a backdrop of a society that doesn't get it when you have people who say, my emergency contact is not anyone in my family. Um, it is my person, essentially. Or like, especially when it comes to death, like there's been so many cases where people have said, I do not want my family involved. I want my very specific best friend involved. I want this person from my work involved because that is who I trust. And there's this weird thing that happened, not weird thing, it's actually, um, I would definitely push to say that it's connected to ableism in a lot of ways, but there's this thing that happens whenever people are um, in palliative care or they are ex they know that they're going to be experiencing death very soon people start to call into question whether or not they know what they need and that is inherently harmful um so yeah like that is a huge thing about how our society almost um makes us feel terrible and isolates us um when we are self-determining about what our bonds need to look like in life and death. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you, okay, so can maybe can we try like a thought experiment? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. If we were, I want to know what a future for you would look like if you were to imagine um, that these systems were dismantled, that these systems and um, ideologies that create this violence and like yeah if, if those things mm -hmm. um, were yeah were burned to the ground and yeah removed, what would it look like for you like root like something rooted in care and love and justice mm -hmm. yeah what yeah yes so I think like my brain is the first thing that I think of is like um centering making sure that we are centering the voices of like first nations metis and inuit people in this conversation um about like what does dismantling these institutions look like and what would what would the reality of these um of the world look like because i think so of course we know so much of the violence that's taken place around how we understand every single part of the world has had to do with 
like 1492 and beyond and moving forward and the massive amount of like colonial violence and imperial violence that's taking place. So I definitely think that is something that is like a huge, not just priority for me, but like a non-negotiable in so many ways. Um, I think beyond, not beyond that, including that, I also think about, um, I don't know, self-determination is a huge thing for me. Like, being able to exercise your and pick up tangibly in your hand and use your self-determination in the world in a way that does not require you to play martyr to a system that you've been made to feel that you need to compete in. Um, so I like something that I thought about yesterday and that it's like an ongoing grudge that I have um, is that I hate golf courses. I think that they are so terrible in every possible way. I'm just like, as if, yes, we know that we are poor. Okay. We know, we know, we don't need to sit here and be reminded that we need to pay a premium that most of us will never be able to afford. And even if we could, we would still not be allowed in there because we're what racialized and poor. And it's just like, I see these things and I'm like, first of all, look at all of this land that is like stolen. Like all of this is stolen, but like y'all really took it and (laughs) turned around and said, you know what? We are just going to make this for us. And we are going to manicure it to the point where it doesn't look like anything and it's just ugly. And I think, like, I literally have, like, I will sit and daydream and give myself the greatest boost of serotonin just thinking about, oh, we could, like, literally farm on this land. We could make sure that this land is going back to the people who are the original, like, caretakers of this land. We could literally create, like, birth, like, birth centers so that people could birth in ways that are, like, respected to their ancestors we could have palliative care where people are not like sequestered up into a home but are able to like actually genuinely engage with the world around them in whatever way that they need like there would be funding for kids and like younger kids to be able to learn about reproductive justice everything would be accessible there would like it's just goes on and on and like something that I love about specifically folks who have like experienced a history of oppression or still dealing with that trauma. And it's terrifying because I'm sometimes I ask myself like, when will we ever get through this? But I think it's not so much about getting over it or through it. It's about like, what are we doing now? Cause that's what we can actually attend to. But I think like in further answering your question, I just think of it like we just get to live. Like we yeah. just get to live. And like that reality is so um, immediate for me because it really is that severe for a lot of us that like you just, some of us just want to live in ways that don't force us to sacrifice who we are, that don't tell us that we're wrong all the time. Um, yeah. And I also, I also feel that like 
when I think about a world that's like outside of the bounds and the impact or these things, these institutions are dismantled. I also like want us to rethink. And this is something that I've had conversations with a lot of people. And surprisingly, I've had more of these conversations with like people who I guess like for very like polar term are like leftists in a lot of ways the way that our society like disregards children is like something that makes me sick um and disregards youth and doesn't understand that like children and babies and people that we assume don't have any real um experience in the world by virtue of their age this like severe assumption that these people have nothing to offer um it's kind of scary for me sometimes how much we live in a society where people will just say, I hate kids as if it's a personality trait. And I have to like remind people all the time that like, that's not an okay thing to say. That's actually really, really terrible. And it's, it's not something to use to sound edgy. Like children are smarter than all of us and they know, they absolutely know. And to exist in a world where you don't feel cared for, um, regardless of whether or not you have parents, I think it's just, it's incredibly harmful. And I think that's also something that people don't understand about colonization. I think a lot of of the time people just think it's like, yeah, we're going to be down with capitalism and these fascist governments are terrible. But it's also like, so many of us, I have the hardest time recognizing the oppression that we embody. Um, And we don't always understand that like saying things like, oh, I hate children or um, everyone is terrible or assuming that like the world has nothing good to offer, which to be honest, I completely get in a lot of ways is like, that's colonial violence. Like that's like literally how your mind has been colonized to assume or to say that you hate children when it's like, we wouldn't have anything without them. And we're kind of doing a piss poor job at offering them a world um, that they would be proud of and not something that they're having to overhaul. Like they already are at the age of like six. Yeah. That's something else that I think about. And it's like, something that doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, but there's this very weird visceral thing that happens when it comes to kids and people whose politics that I thought were really amazing or even organizations, you'll hear them say like, oh, this kid's really annoying. And it's just like, no, that kid's just being a kid and they might just be holding up a mirror to you that you're not really ready to face. Um, but it doesn't make that kid bad in any way. Yeah, yeah, and like um, in some of the like I've sat in on like a few talks and like I've I've done um, like retreats mm-hmm. where I've had like the privilege of learning from like Anishinaabe knowledge keepers and teachers, mm-hmm. like scholars, and a lot of like what they talked about was like the natural order of the world and like yes. how how it's structured and like it it's always in relation to like into something greater than us than the immediate like then mm. the it's like around like um like talking about community and talking about our relationship to like um plant beings absolutely animals, like, 
four-legged ones and like and then how that ties into um to future generations and what is being left for them mm-hmm. and I remember like yeah um uh the, the person who was speaking she was an elder um uh yeah from Ottawa mm-hmm. and like um yeah and she 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 showed us like these like she drew like the salmon in the sphere and then like people and like showed the connection there yeah and then um yeah and like in my learnings like about treaty and like the mm-hmm. belt, it's like they include um the like it's you the beads that are woven into that um represent the kinds of contracts that you hold with people and like yes. they, you would leave a bead they would polish it they would work it um because it, it, it like represented like a communion and that was like mm-hmm. that was when conversations would take place about like you know how we're going to work together and how we're going to collaborate and um and then also like the fringes at the end of the treaty represent like promises to like for like what is being left for future generations and like now like without having any conception of that or like empathy for just like mm-hmm. being able to like conceive of like children as people and having personhood and like being like what is the state of our world and like what are we leaving like who are we fucking over yeah <laughs> like, thing that I like I think about I think about my friends who have who have children and like it's like there there's just so much importance placed on like the decision making that happens now and and it's 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 and it's because like I don't know do we know how to be in community with each other in that way where we're like where we're seeing like a shared responsibility to those around us and even those that like don't have anything to offer for us or don't we don't have a like there's nothing transactional there like like yeah and it's something that I think about <laughs> Same. A lot of the time. yeah um yeah and uh, yeah yeah but, I I mean like that's another thing like I think that's part of the reason why I love that this is now turned into like a conversation about me being like, we need to treat youth better because we so much of that's the violence of capitalism, right? Where it forces you and it literally colonizes your brain and how you look at the world that you see everything is transactional. Right. So of course we're going to look at like a beautiful baby and be like, you've cried. I have to clean you up. What have you offered me? And it's like, maybe it's not about not it's not about making things transactional it's actually about like how do we understand that we are connected to each other whether you like it or not like that's actually how we are and that like there's also this like huge thing of like neoliberal like individualism as like a niche cool thing to do whereas like it's not it's not going to save any of us that's not going to work yeah 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 this is I'm just I'm just so happy to be having this conversation I'm glad I'm glad <laughs> like this with this wealth of knowledge that you have thank you um, yeah I did want to talk like yeah in talking about relationships um mm-hmm. we were talking about how um 
people see like the conception of death is that there's a finality to it like that mm-hmm. like they're gone in their physical form and that's the end um but you talked about how um just because that physical form is no longer present um that doesn't mean that the relationship ends so what do you mean by that and like how like for people that are wondering how do you continue a relationship with someone that has passed on per se yeah so i i i guess i can speak for myself first but um one example that i will use is my um my my grandmother when she passed on um I speak to her every day and it's just something that I do and it's to the point where like I don't even really recognize it's never a thing where I'm like I'm deliberately doing this it's just it's how I exist in the world and for me that was really important because it how do I explain this it forced me not so much forced me but like for me, it was less about like, oh my goodness, she's passed on. She's no longer physically here with me, even though that is so incredibly important and is something that like I miss and is a huge source of grief for me. Um, but the way that I stay connected to my ancestors and specifically my grandmother um, and her mom is by acknowledging their presence in my life and that I'm not just going to throw them away because their physical form isn't here. Right. So because I can't go to Jamaica and like have her cook for me or listen to her jokes or like because I was never able to meet my great grandmother um, and be able to read with her. And like basically we're the same person in a lot of ways from what my family's told me. Just because I don't have access to them in that way doesn't mean that their presence shouldn't be revered it doesn't mean that I all of a sudden stop having respect for them and it doesn't mean that all of a sudden their influence is less palpable because we're not physically in the same realm or in the same place so for me um being able to connect with my ancestors is an act of gratitude in a lot of ways to show them that like this is what you've left me and this is what I'm doing with it these are the things that you've taught me these are this is how I do things like I use an example of the fact that like my grandmother was not just like opposed but like deep in the root of who she was she was like you will never ever wear ripped jeans and she was like I'm not having it I don't care which style it is you are not doing that and to this day I will never wear ripped jeans and (laughs) I've had people be like but like no offense she's not here and I was like but see that's your problem she's always here she hasn't gone anywhere so it's it's for me it's about gratitude it's about like the constant act of like honoring and revering them um and that's something that I think is really important for me um and it's also an act of remembering that I didn't make myself and I think for a lot of like for a lot of us for racialized folks um that is something that's really important because so much of like who we are and where we came from has been stolen from us, has been colonized, has been capitalized on, and then has been sold back to us, attempted to be sold back to us at a price that like none of us should ever have to pay. Right. But my connection to my ancestors is like the constant reminder of like, 
I did not make myself. I am not alone. Um, I'm not an accident. I'm as deliberate as possible. Um, I'm, I was an intention. Like it wasn't as if I'm not disposable the way that the world wants to treat me as a black woman. Um, I do not need to define myself based off of um, standards or ideas of personhood when these are the people that I came from. So for me, and I think that's something that I um, impart to other people all the time is that so much of how you can stay connected to your ancestors and to the people who you have loved so deeply, um, regardless of whether or not um, colonial and very patriarchal and white supremacist standards of relationships would have to say, you still have a relationship with these people. You still have a relationship um, with like these entities and these um, things that you've had such important bonds with that have changed you and have moved you simply because they're not there in the physical form does not mean that it doesn't exist. Um, but also I think it's important to say that like, we don't always have to feel great about how we grieve. Like sometimes we can be upset with the people who pass on. Um, and that's another thing that oftentimes happens where, where people feel like I can't express my frustration. I can't be upset. I just need to be immovable and I need to be stoic. And we're allowed to have incredibly complicated feelings, the complicated feelings that we have around the people who pass on in our lives the complication doesn't stop the moment that they passed on. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't have to make it palatable to anybody else. We don't have to, it doesn't have to make sense to anybody else. But I do think that it's important to remember um, that like we still have these bonds. And even though I did use the relationship of my grandmother, my great grandmother, I have that relationship and I speak to the people in my life who are my aunties and my uncles and my nibblings and like all of these things who I wasn't I wasn't related to. like most of my aunties that are in my life and most of my aunties who passed on we weren't related at all they were my mom's best friends but they meant the world to me and it didn't matter that we weren't related that didn't affect anything it was about what they meant to me in my life and I still speak to my my aunties and I still speak to my uncle Roger um, because they meant so much to me and I'm proud to have them in my life um, as proud as I was when I was a kid or as proud as I was when um, we no longer existed in the same way. Um, I think that's a huge thing that I really want people to know that like your relationships and how death is defined um, in very colonial ways is, does not do justice um, to your capacity to connect with your ancestors. And your ancestors also do not need to be people that you're physically or like genetically connected to. Um, I think especially for a lot of queer and trans folks, we understand the elders and the people who came before us as people we are deeply connected to because they're family in so many ways. And we get to like hold them and care for them in so many ways. Yeah, 
Yeah, I feel like if like the connection is valid <laughs> if, yeah. you, if you feel it and like it's in it's interesting to like also think about building a daily practice of that gratitude. Absolutely. And like to forebears, the people that you feel connected to. Um yeah. Yeah, this is yeah. I'm so happy to hear that. Can you tell can you talk a little bit about what your grandma was like? Yeah. So my grandmother, <laughs> this lady, um, my grandmother is was well, she is. Um <laughs> She's like, it's funny because people meet my mom and then they turn to me and they're like, you make a lot more sense now. Um, <laughs> and then people generally have like, there's so many times that my mom has said like, you are your great grandmother. You are your grandmother. Um, my grandmother, she's like so fierce and like has a tongue like a sword, but is the kindest person you'll ever meet. And she loves so intensely, but she is, she's very, and that's where we're a lot alike, where her understanding of justice is very sharp. And she is like, she's like, no, there's no wavering on whether or not it's okay to be racist. You're terrible for that. You were racist and you should atone for that. And I think for me and like the work that I do, it's very, she's uncompromising. And I think for her, um, especially like she was, she was born in like 1910 and she like is this brilliant person, but for her against the backdrop of like anti-Black racism, misogyny, um, class, so many of these things for her to be um, unrelenting, to be deliberate, um, to be unapologetic um, is like, even today I think is completely new and not something that we see a lot. Um, she was also very just like, for her it was very important that she taught like myself and my mom. Um, she was always very much just like, do not make yourself smaller for other people. That is too much of a price to pay. Um, and she was very much just like, listen, do whatever you want. Sleep with whoever you want. Make lots of money. Push out babies. Just don't, please try not to get married. And I think for her, it was coming from a place of just like, she sees, for her, freedom and liberation was such a huge thing. And she didn't want anyone or any institution to get in the way of that. And as much as in some ways she was sort of joking around, I do believe that there was a, like a level of truth to it where she basically was saying once again, like, do not make yourself small for anybody. Um, do not make yourself palatable for anybody. It is not worth it. She was very much a huge proponent of just like, if you're not palatable to somebody, they can choke and that's not your problem. And, like, that's the sort of, like, that's the influence that I got from, like, my grandmother. But she also loved people so fiercely um, and was very sharp and, like, the funniest, wittiest person that I've ever met. And, like, being able to watch her take, like, men who thought that they could, like, speak down to her 
watching her just like take them down to size was like a complete revelation and I like I'm so grateful to her and my mom in so many ways because um they always forced me and reminded me like you walk in the world with the full knowledge that you are just as powerful as anybody else um and no matter what anybody else says to you they can say what they want but don't you dare make yourself small for somebody else because that's a huge price to pay which is like a theme in my family yeah i i'm a huge fan (laughs) yeah she's kind of awesome (laughs) and i can see her in you and yeah thank you how you are um thank you for sharing that no worries thank you (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. I I want to ask a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. I think we are coming. Um, yeah. I think we are coming to a little bit of, and we're kind of wrapping up. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I did want to know, like, um, like in facilitating these talks around uh, around death and around grief, mm-hmm. um, were like what were some of the most like um, powerful insights that you got? I'm doing it and like were there moments or people or things that they that folks um said to you that kind of took you by surprise um I guess one of the big things that sort of takes me by surprise I guess is that like people are resonating with it Mm -hmm. um in a way that like goes beyond like oh that makes sense but how do I say this is more so from a place of finally someone else feels this way for something that I felt paranoid about my whole life. And that for me is like some of the biggest stuff Um, because how many of, how many of us have experienced and have to live at very specific intersections and identities where you feel how the world is treating you but everything around you is telling you that that's not true. Mm. And you are made to feel as if you're paranoid. You're made to feel as if you're ungrateful. Um, You're made to feel as if you are a terrible person. Um, And then to be able to like, A, sit and bear witness to people over Zoom, literally looking into their cameras and being like, I didn't know someone else felt this way. is like that's nothing compares to that because I also know how huge that feeling is and it's amazing and going back to what we spoke about about like interconnectedness um I the only reason why I can be offered and be granted um that moment from other people and like be trusted with that moment from other people is by me acknowledging like the truth of how I feel and sharing it with other people despite the fact that everything in the world tells us like you don't complicate death you do not have conversations that like peel back the layers of like forgiveness you do not tell people that like you do not have to forgive to make other people feel better forgiveness has to be earned like you don't tell people that so to be able to sit in a space and be like hey you get to form your own relationship around forgiveness Forgiveness should not be weaponized against you. You get to do it in your own time. Um, And watching people be like, I never knew that I could do that or that I was allowed to do that. 
um, is like some of the most amazing, amazing stuff. And then also, I think the other piece around something else around like these talks would definitely be being able to come sit there and have conversations with people at very specific intersections about how people understand grief. Um, so for example, like in May, we have another talk coming up that's talking about like the grief around chronic illness and how that's not a conversation that's being had and how by institutions of ableism and capitalism and eugenics, like people who are disabled and chronically ill um, are often never given the space to be able to have complicated conversations about our bodies and how it means to exist in the world without having someone come in and be like, well, you should be grateful that you're even alive or um, why don't speak poorly about yourself when you're a disabled person where it's like, no, for a lot of disabled folks, we're not speaking poorly about ourselves. We're speaking about how hard it is to exist and navigate an able society when you're disabled or chronically ill or you navigate having a mental health diagnosis. Like there's this way in which ableism um, constantly tries to either turn disabled folks um, and chronically ill folks into this weird, um, like, you've overcome so much and that's the only reason we respect you. And we're gonna turn you into this like barely functioning thing that's not actually human. We're just using you um, to show all these other disabled people you need to step up. Whereas like in the, the group that we have and the talks that we do have to be able to have those conversations um, around ableism and around chronic illness and how ableist our society is, while also doing that in conjunction with having conversations about race, having conversations about class, um, having conversations about sex work. Like those are things that like, it's literally feels like a complete reimagination of what the world can be. Um, and it's really such a privilege to be able to do that and to do it alongside Carmen, who's just so brilliant, is like, it always leaves me in awe that like, people come away from it being like I've waited my whole life for someone to acknowledge how much work it takes for me as a disabled person to go out and meet someone else for lunch and it may seem like the minutia of things but for so many chronically ill and disabled folks like the minutia is everything um yeah 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 I um yeah <laughs> um I'm so yeah I'm just there's so many things lighting up my brain um mm -hmm. and um yeah and if yeah I'd like to share that talk um if you, yeah if you send yeah me, I can share it around oh yeah um, definitely yeah uh I guess like to come like so one of the questions that I ask at the end mm -hmm. for people which everybody hates me for, and I forgot to send this to you in advance, but I That's do. Okay. So the thing, um, the question that I ask everybody on this podcast is um, what, in, in one sentence, how, how would you summarize the meaning of life? Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, you good. don't have to do it that way, but like, yeah, if I feel like 
now like in, in this time of like just we're being hit with so many crises and everybody is experiencing it on a different level yeah based on the intersections of oppression that they experience mm-hmm. I think yeah we're moving from day to day to day um but yeah if you could <laughs> I think it's a big ask but like yeah if for, for people who are looking for meaning what do you mm-hmm. think that is in this time so I always think about like um yeah, there's two things that constantly are in my brain whenever I'm just like, oh, the world is a lot right now. How are we doing this? Um, so the first thing is like remain teachable. And for me, that's indicative of so many things. Um, pr- like mostly because if I'm remaining teachable, that means that there's hope for something like that something else will happen and that the permanency of this moment is not actually what it is and that it will keep going. Um, But it also forces me to remember that like being teachable and remaining teachable is all it's right beside it's like tangled with um, keeping a soft heart and keeping an open heart despite everything. Um, Because if I'm remaining teachable, I'm allowing like waking up in the morning and the birds outside like being birds and I'm so grateful for that. And I'm forced to sit and like learn that like I need to be hearing that. That needs to be something I experience because that connects me to my humanity or remaining teachable as somebody who is a settler on like treaty 13 where we're at right now like that for me is really important um because i need to constantly be decolonizing myself and be um decolonizing how i'm understanding um my connection in this land and making sure that i'm walking in a path that is not violent that i'm not taking too much and not leaving enough um, so I think in a weird way, it reminds me to be accountable in ways, but like that term remain teachable, um, reminds me to be, to like stay soft, um, to be humble to the land that I'm on. Um, but also to remind myself, like, it feels terrible right now, but there is, you will learn something and there is something more to come out of everything. Um, and it's okay that it feels absolutely terrible. Um, and not everything needs to be good. Not everything needs to be good, but you do have to sometimes allow the world to like wash over you is how I have to sort of put it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, even bigger smile on my face. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> and it feels like it's weird because it also feels like I'm just like here in my little room but it feels like being like held like this conversation like <laughs> that means so, that's all I really want most of the time for, is for people to be held because it's like yeah we it's hard because it's you never know what that will look like and I think so much even myself around like allowing myself to be held by the people around me is like um can I still keep myself while also allowing it to happen so that means a lot thank you
Thank you. Thank you. This um, this this talk was such a gift. You are such a gift. Oh, um, thank you. you. Thank you for taking the time. Um, thank you for your presence. And yeah, I'm gonna sign off. This was okay. After Life Podcast. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye.